You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chu's reviews books for NPR's All Things Considered. His latest work of nonfiction is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. His latest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A great pleasure, Rick, as always. And today we have three delightful books, uh, all very different, and I think all really unique works that uh, incorporate uh, major elements of the fantastic and do so in a, in a really uh, well-wrought way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're and quite surprising that uh, since neither of us was aware of one of them uh, before the last couple of months, uh, the, the Red Shift, which uh, came out in the 60s or early 70s in England by a writer um, named Ellen Garner, this is a remarkable work of fantasy that does in, what, what is this, like a couple hundred pages? Yeah. Yeah, less than 200 pages, what many people, does more than what many people do in three, uh, you know, doorstop tomes and right. and does it with an elegance of language and just a, a breadth of imagination that I, think I thought was really remarkable. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's published in 73. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Garner's a writer who uh, born and lives has lived all his life in Cheshire, in and around Cheshire, in England. And uh, this is a, a Cheshire book. It's it's a kind of three layer three layers of time in in Cheshire, uh, going back to the days of the Celtic uh, Britain, where you know the Romans were occupying Cheshire. And this lost Roman legion tries to uh, to assimilate itself among the rough tribes of uh, Celtic Cheshire, and then the the uh, 17th century uh, civil war in which uh, a band of uh, Protestants uh, I, I got that wrong in the civil war in which uh, the Puritans uh, Puritan army. Cromwell's army attacks a band of royal soldiers living in a Cheshire village and executes almost all of the, the men. Um, and then a, a contemporary uh, section in which these teenagers, the woman slightly older than the boy, are having this uh, oblique kind of romance. Uh, she's got an older man in the city that she's having an affair with, but she's flirting with this uh, Cheshire fellow and um, they invent a kind of uh, kind of code language that they use to communicate with each other because the boy's parents are definitely opposed to his hanging out with this woman. Uh, so that's Tom and Jan, and then you have the 17th century... Uh, Thomas Puritan, and Marjorie. Puritans, yes. And the, uh, and, and the Roman legionnaires. Uh, that's a lot to pack into a couple hundred pages, but it really, really works. And so, I mean, on the face of it, it's about the relation of these three temporal periods. I think at one point Tom says to Jan, he says, um, they're looking up at the sky, he says, there's never now, there's never now, 
the galaxy we're looking at, he says, may not exist at this moment. It isn't even where we think it is. It's so far away. We're looking at it as it was when the Romans were here. So in a way, the stars hold everything together, I guess, and even they aren't uh, something you can count on always. And uh, there's a, a really nice uh, bridging device between the the three periods, this axe head that is buried in a chimney and yes. found in a hill. Yes. And, and I, I really love the the way that the author uses his language. I mean, the prose in this book is really beautifully wrought. Yes. And the way he uses the language to kind of create this blur between the periods and, and um, you know, uh, ally the perceptions of the people all trapped in these different times um, so that they kind of blend into one. And I think that's a, a really, you know, beautiful way. And, and the way he... Um, though there's nothing, you know, I think in a sense that's um, uh, overtly fantastic in this, you know, there's, I mean, this is just, you know, essentially his, a historical novel with three different pieces of history kind of tied together by this bridging device. There's still this great feel um, in this book that evokes the, you know, there's more in this world than is accounted for in your philosophy, Horatio. Yes, I, I like the way you use trapped because, I mean, as you, as you talk about it, I, I see something which I didn't see when I read it. I mean, relating to, relating to that axe head, which is that, I mean, this is a book of excavation in a way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's, he's unearthing uh, not just the periods out of the, uh, you know, the apparent past, but he's showing us that these teenagers in London, contemporary London, that, which is 1970, as he's writing, are also uh, historical figures who will become someone else's deep, distant past at some point. And, and I just think that the, uh, the also, you know, capturing those kind of eternal connections that it doesn't matter whether it's 2,000 years ago or now. Uh, people still talk to one another in secret languages, and mm-hmm. people still communicate um, in essentially the same way that, you know, the timelessness and the changing times, the way he works this together, I think it's just really a, a remarkably beautiful novel about what it means to be human and to condense so much history into such a tight space. It's really, um, it's a book that hides its accomplishments well. Yes. Uh, because you you get so much out of this book, and, you know, it only takes a couple of days to read it. Right. It's, it's, it, you can read it rather quickly. I, I mean, it, so it is a kind of, it, it's an archaeological find mm-hmm. that uh, New York Review of Books uh, publishing arm has, has uh, brought to our attention. I think it's well worth anybody's attention who loves a, uh, a finely made and really interesting novel. And, and even for us, um, I guess the extra irony here is this is a book about archaeological finds that is an archaeological literary find for yeah, us. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to suggest. <laughs> yeah. Moving up in time, America's uh, own uh, Charles Dickens, I think, as it were. The opposite of something buried. Yeah, something very something that that practically will be burying us. I think in not the, hard to find, but hard to ignore. Hard to ignore, exactly. I remember, uh, oh, uh, an editor, a friend of mine, years ago, talking about uh, some writer who, who whose work I didn't much like, but who's very popular. He said, "Well, you know, with the." Chicago Express is coming down the tracks. You better jump off if you don't want to get on. So. <laughs> and so 
this is Stephen King, um, and it's uh, quite a piece of work, really enjoyable. It's eight over 800 pages long, uh, n- nosed out only by uh, the Murakami novel this year, which is 900 pages long. Uh, King has done, it's, it's, it's called 112263, and it's about this uh, main high school teacher who uh, discovers a way to go, a portal back in time to a period a couple of years before the Kennedy assassination, and he makes it his business to see if he can assassinate Lee Harvey Oswald before Oswald assassinates Kennedy. Um, And uh, he goes back and makes a practice run in which he uh, shoots the father of the janitor who works in his school because he knows the father is going to murder um, a couple of people in the family in the janitor's family when when they're children and murder the wife. Uh, And when he discovers he can do that, he goes back, he goes down to Texas and uh, tries to establish himself, establishes a base and begins to do the work of what he takes to be blocking the, uh, the assassination of Kennedy. And he discovers, the most interesting aspect of this novel, he discovers that Time is resistant. Time fights back. Time has a sense of gravity. It wants to stick to itself. Yeah. Time doesn't want you to change it. And, of course, all this is just a great pretext for uh, Stephen King to take us back in time and immerse us in in a giant slab of late 50s, early 60s Americana, as he does so well. We meet a huge smorgasbord of characters, some of whom we love, some of whom we despise, and it's it's one of those books that makes you kind of say, well, I'm sick. (laughs) I'm going to lay down on the couch for the next three days and uh, immerse myself in Stephen King, and it's truly a delight. You know, the King's novel, The Dead Zone, is kind of precursor for this, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. That's about the clairvoyant young guy who wants to uh, assassinate a presidential candidate. One of his best novels, and I think arguably the best movie ever made from one of his books. Yeah, yeah. That Cronenberg movie was fantastic. Remember in that that novel, he asked a German refugee who lost a son in World War II, he says, if you could go back in time to 1932 and kill Hitler, would you? And the man says, yes. And and, uh, so here King has this... uh, time-traveling English teacher, Jake Epping, who goes back to 1958 and uh, tries to prevent the the Kennedy assassination. You know, King is so well-known for uh, writing horror novels, but I think it's uh, his... Uh, it's underreported, as it were, that he's really effective no matter what genre he plays in. I mean, here's a yeah. science fiction time travel novel, yep. and I think he does just does a, a bang-up job of at throwing in enough uh, entertaining science fiction aspects to keep you going. And he never, because he's not like a scientist or you know a super science fiction genre writer, he doesn't mire us in that aspect mm-hmm. of the of the of the plot and just uses that to get us there and have fun and and you know take us to on what is ultimately a very emotional and tragic journey i think and yeah when he goes down to texas he, he falls in love with southern small town life he falls in love with his students and he has a, a, falls in love with a librarian <laughs> and uh he uh he, he wants to stay there but he knows he can't stay there 
and uh, tries to cope out his business, but this leads to some terrible events. It's really, I think, uh, King has just got found himself really, I think, in a groove at this point, mm-hmm. where you know he seems to be really in touch with what he wants to write, and he gets it out there fast. I mean, I, last year's giant tome, uh, Under the Dome, I think, was also really effective, and I think this is actually, I like this one a little bit better. Um, it has a, I think, a, yes, it has a well, you know, for it has a certain gravitas. Right, right. Because of the historical event that he's working with. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, that's a really dangerous thing to play around with. If You know, uh, not only just in terms of time travel, but in literary terms. If if you mess this up, it looks bad, and it reads bad, and he doesn't mess it up. No, he's done done all of his homework, and uh, only the the anti-establishment theorists who believe that Oswald was just the patsy and didn't do it will be unhappy with this novel. I think anyone else who, you know, history buffs, uh, time travel buffs, and Stephen King fans, which I guess when you add all of those people up, there's millions and millions of people, um, will be really extremely engaged and, and pleased by this novel. And, and, you know, I think that um, a lot of people whom, who are readers who might not have uh, wanted to read Stephen King before for fear of his gore or his violence or whatever the the knock on him is, or his um, being the Big Mac of American literature, I think this is not a bad place to start. It's a it's a rich and rewarding novel with a nice imaginative twist, and I think right, he, he's really a genius. You invoked Dickens, and I think that's accurate. Um, I mean, he can do the fine, uh, you call it European style fiction if he wants to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's done, you know, maybe, oh, 30 years ago, he's done a couple of novellas. Uh, I think they're called Four Past Midnight. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, that's where I think the body came from. This Yeah, the body's in me. there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, and, he, and he writes a brilliant Borges-like story in there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just to show that he can do it. And he can. And But I think, you know... Uh, his what I like about him most is he's very much a plebeian. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, he he's not his his characters aren't elitist, his stories aren't elitist, and his books aren't elitist. They're for the people, but they're rich and rewarding and highly artistic and engaging, just as much as anything else. Yeah, and this one is definitely worth reading. Uh, you know, um, this old elitist will say that. <laughs> He wrote this thing, uh, he wrote this novel in Sarasota, Florida, and, and Lovell, Maine, between January 2009 and December 2010, and if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have him change a single page. <laughs> and speaking of single pages and uh, writers who know what to do, I, Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro and his writing partner... Uh, Chuck Hogan. Chuck Hogan, uh, absolutely knock it out of the ballpark with the third book in their uh, vampire trilogy, The Night Eternal. Let's just say that, uh, I mean, I will declare publicly, I mean, since Anne Rice's vampire uh, novels, these are the best. I mean, an entirely different tone from the Anne Rice, uh, not as stylistically 
polished as Anne Rice, because she writes a, a beautiful sentence and a beautiful paragraph, but these are the best since she stopped uh, working on those vampire chronicles. I mean, there and there have been a lot of vampire books. There have been, and one of the things I think that's just so remarkable about these books is when you see a series and you see the first in a series and it's like 320 pages, my suspicion is that the next one's always going to be 420 pages and the mm-hmm. third one's going to be like 820 mm-hmm. pages. Mm-hmm. And these guys kept these rockin' taut, you know, they stick to the point, and I think they did a great job at, you know, architecting this, plotting this, imagining this, the payoff as this is in this book, we find out where the vampires came from. Yes. Which, and I, and I think they did a really great job. Nobody's quite come up with that explanation before, and I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, the thing is, that you've got Del Toro's visual imagination. Uh, I mean, remember, I mean, this is the guy who made Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone, and and uh, Hogan's narrative pacing, and and you've got a, as you say, a, a great uh, book, as they say in the uh, soap opera business. You know, the or the story, the origins of this particular strain, to use the title of the first volume, the strain, uh, the origins of this particular strain of vampirism. I mean, the only. The only difficult part for me to take, but I accepted it really, you know, because I was enjoying the story so much, the, the sort of spiritual and supernatural roots. Um, I mean, Anne Rice does that a, a little better, I think. But, you know, that being said, um, I mean, this new volume uh, takes us to the edge of Armageddon. and and Well, well past I don't wanna, actually. I don't want to say, yeah, past that, actually, right. <laughs> I, I think one of the things they do is um, with this book is really evoke that sense of dread and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more than terror; it's awe, and I think they make you know you really scared and kind of almost depressed. And, and, and well, yeah, I mean, it's the, the I mean the vampire master uh, explodes a bunch of nuclear bombs and brings on nuclear winter, so that there's hardly any daylight, so the vampires can go about their business of breeding human beings for their blood. And, and I think that, you know, the human's behavior in that, um, the way they play that out, in that scenario out, is also very chilling and really well wrought. Yeah, I mean, it's very reminiscent of, uh, you know, European collaboration with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think, too, we, we like the, you know, the heroes, the, the, they're really damaged. <laughs> they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're all very screwed up people, and they're, they're barely making it. And I think that, you know, they push that to the limit, but not too far. Yeah. And yeah. That, I mean, that's a delicate balance that they, that they do there, and I think they do a good job with that. I agree. I mean, there's a Center for Disease Control doctor and... Ephraim Goodweather. And Nora, who's another uh, CDC doctor. Um, and then there's also an, one of the heroes is a New York exterminator. The rat champ- catcher. Yeah, <laughs> champion vampire hunter by the end of the novel. And, some, and in this volume, some Chicano gang bangers from New Jersey whose skills at crime turn out to be extremely useful in the fight against these blood drinkers. So uh, this is, uh, well, it's almost... It's almost as long. This trilogy is almost as long as the King King novel. Yeah, yeah. But I think, um, you know, they do too. I thought one of the things that uh, is in a trilogy that's really uh, dicey 
is to pace the individual volumes well. And, yes. and they did, I think, an, a great job of, you know, making, you know, we had three books in three years. I remember, what was it, two, just two years ago? Maybe three years ago. Mm-hmm. No, we're, two, we're, two. Two years ago, we were talking about the first one coming out when it first came out. And it was, you know, that the fact that they delivered them on time. Yep. They delivered books that were, you know, uh, equally paced, equally length. Um, they delivered a great conclusion, and each book kind of stood on its own. You know, you you wanted to read the next one. You were kind of baited with bated breath, but it wasn't like you were somebody was falling off a cliff. Right. Uh, so I think, that, you know, all these kind of little grace notes that go into it, and again, that might seem kind of hard to notice in terms of the writing, you know, just the way they're written and architected, I think, really make for a, a very satisfying series. Yeah, and, and I know this this third volume, though, kind of opens up the style a little bit. I mean, it's, it's more naturalistically narrated. It, uh, the first two books are, but in this, the style seems a little looser. It's got many more points of view, mm-hmm. and it shifts back and forth, and the story reforms and shifts again, and it's almost like a montage of mm-hmm. fear-making moments. Yeah, it is very. It does have a, a more, uh, I think, a, a surrealistic edge in, in a way, just in the way that things kind of mixed. It's like this mixture of, uh, of as you say, moments of terror and wonder, and and goes back and forth in time to to figure stuff out. I, it, I no flies on that book. <laughs> no, and as I say, almost as long as the Stephen King. Almost as long as the Stephen King. I've been speaking with Alan Shoes. He's NPR's Voice of Books. His latest collection of nonfiction is Travel Essays, A Trance After Breakfast. His latest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert. The three books we talked about today were Stephen King's 112263, Red Shift by Alan Garner, and The Night Eternal by Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, as always, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.